Parole is back and we're in South Africa. Today's guest is Mike Sherman, the co-founder and chief creative officer of Retroviral. But really, I should introduce him as a serial entrepreneur. Mike is one of those guys who understands media, communications and strategy. And while talking to him, I saw why he's successful. He is full of energy and passion for what he does. By the way, I hope you love what you do too. Back in Burundi, I remember watching Mnet and thinking, South Africa is really ahead of everything in Africa, even in their communications. I mean, Mnet, if you know, you know. Let me give a shout out to Supersport too. Let me ask you this. What ad has changed the way you saw a brand? What ad has made you fall in love with a brand? A 30-second ad with shouted answers plus rock music blasting in the ears. That was my first encounter with Apple. I sometimes watch them on YouTube, you know, for all time's sake. I'm talking about scenes I watched more than 15 years ago. Communications agencies like the ones founded by Mike in South Africa or Joan in Rwanda, episode 62, are changing the media landscape for Africans. I can say it was about time. In Burundi, let me give a shout out to the Burundi on a Map Instagram page that is showcasing what many need to see and hear about my country. There are many things to explore and to enjoy. Not to blow my own horn, but I remember when I had the idea of podcasting, I knew that I could change at least one person's perspective on Zimbabwe, Chad, or Morocco. Starting a cultural shift in one country is tough, let alone on a continent. Bahol aims to connect Africans to Africans, as we really have had a few interactions in the past. I know that African media and production companies will take part in creating a cultural shift. Who knows, I might be dropping some vlogs soon. Be there. If you want to reach out to Mike, he's a Twitter guy and he's also on LinkedIn. Parole Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Afripods, or Dapp if you're in Nigeria. One million downloads per episode, so here's me asking for your help. Share, share, share. Paul Podcast via Voice Studios is also on Patreon. If you want to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. Paul Podcast. Paul Podcast today is uh, somewhere in South Africa. What's up over there? How are you doing? Coming to you live from Johannesburg, South Africa. How are you, Alex? <laughs> doing good, doing good. What's up? So tell me who you are before we jump into the episode. My name is Mike Sharman, and I'm the co-founder of a few different ventures. My most notable one is Retroviral, a digital marketing agency that has made more brands go viral globally than any other agency in Africa, and most recently, an athlete commercialization tool called matchkit.co i mean i do you sleep do you have like 24 hours like everybody else in a day or just you surround yourself with people who are i maximize my few hours of shut eye and uh, i have some small children too so sleep is always a very limited (laughs) part of my vocabulary good for you so uh yeah i wanted to talk to you for various reasons but i'll start with what is advertising for you? What is, why this, what, why this sector for you? So we actually had an away day with the staff the other day and we were all talking about what it is that we actually do. And for me, 
I set a challenge to the team and I said, you know, we don't, we don't do advertising. We do branded entertainment. If you put out a tweet and it doesn't entertain, if it doesn't inspire, if it doesn't want people to click further, then bin it. Whether you're working on a serious subject matter, serious things can also entertain. We watch drama series. We stream the most aggressive and crazy shows on our streaming platforms. <laughs> so not everything has to be funny, ha-ha entertainment. Sometimes entertainment can be filled with drama and angst. People who love a bit of Grey's Anatomy will tell you, mm, those medical shows, they're great at entertainment, even though every sure. season somebody new dies that you love. <laughs> that is so true. Okay, so because for me, it's funny when I hear about advertising or branding at entertainment, I like that. Coming from Africa, we always have this, you know, it is what it is, maybe because of my background, we always have to think that, okay, you know, the, the advertising space is not really that great. You know, I, I remember back home, it's like, the main companies like Heineken's and stuff, you always have the same, it's not even an advertisement, it's just like a, a bottle. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's exactly. It's a joke. I, it means that you put a lot of effort right? if you do that. But for us, it's like, oh, in the middle of the street, here's a bottle of, you know, a beer. And, you know, if you're thirsty, there you are, you know, where to buy. And I'm like, can you, you know, can you do a little a lot of things behind that. And I'm thinking about uh, DSTV, multi-choice as well. Growing up with the Mnet and stuff, and you're like, okay, you know, just... And I feel like we're kind of lazy. What is, is it? Maybe it's Burundi, but was it like to, to have like that, like your atmosphere growing up? What was it like to have people branding their stuff? Because now we have like the... Everybody's a brand now, so I kind of... I believe everybody knows exactly... Yeah, I think... I think TV is a great reference because I think that's the one thing that our generation has kind of been exposed to advertising the most. Mm. Like I was on that cusp of the end of cigarette advertising in cinemas when, you know, the end of that generation where people could still smoke in public spaces such as cinemas or wow. on, on airplanes. So we kind of came out of that generation. And I remember as a kid waiting to watch an animated film and then you're exposed to Mainstay, uh, an alcohol brand, or you're ex exposed to Benson and Hedges. And it was all about living this baller high life on a yacht somewhere in Cape Town. That's kind of my earliest memories of, of advertising. And then there were these moments of, uh, you know, patriotism packaged into Castle Lager breweries advertising. And it was also a Volks, uh, Volkswagen uh, city golf ads like with color popping and how you could everybody could afford a, a vehicle like mm. there were there were these these interesting things that that lived in the world where advertising was always an interruption it was never an inclusion in your conversation and and that for me was was always an interesting starting point like here i'm a kid about to watch the little mermaid on the big screen and i'm being exposed to the high life of cigarettes and um, I mean... models Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, oh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So let me take you back then before before everything else. When you were a child, tell us your South Africa, because obviously we all have different experiences in one country. What was your South African growing up? So I think it was it was very um, sheltered and very insular. I think as a child, you also you're not really exposed to what's happening around you politically. And for me, from our side, I was in the second grade when... Um, the first time I met a black child. And that was the first time a black child had been included in um, in my schooling system. And for me, it, it was just a new kid. It wasn't a color, it wasn't a, a race, it wasn't a culture. And um, 
you know, my first black friend was a guy called Joseph and Joseph was just a, he was just a friend. And you, you don't really uh, realize that there are colors, shapes and sizes when you're a child. It's society around you. And, you know, for us, we started learning a new uh, national anthem. We were introduced to a new flag. So there was a whole bunch of political stuff that was happening. But, you know, as you're going through various grades, I think I was in the, in the third grade when we learned a new anthem and we, we got a new flag. And for me, it just, as you're going through these different levels of schooling, you feel like you're moving on to new levels. So you learn new things. Oh, are we learning the anthem? We're learning a, a flag. Like it just felt like it was part of the schooling system. You didn't realize that so much change was happening politically in South Africa. And I guess, you know, we were, as kids, we were very sheltered from, from those realities. And, and I think that was, that was something that um, you, you only learn about in later life when you start uh, critically analyzing or dissecting the political landscape. And for me, I'm a, I'm a history nut. And, and having done art at school, you also do history of art. So you end up being mm. exposed to, you know, from our schooling, not just South African art and um, exposure, not just the re Renaissance and, and European trends. But, you know, we were learning about Benin and how there was so much richness um, thousands of years ago in terms of clay pottery making and like in extracting gold and using gold within artifacts and the creation of these different moments in history. And, you know, fortunately growing up, um, I was I was very privileged. My dad was a, a, an airline pilot for South African Airways. So from a very young age, always exposed to a lot of different cultures, exposed to a lot of museums. My dad is always a big fan of museums and taking me to learn about the history of different markets. One of my earliest memories was going to Uganda, to Entebbe, uh, to, the, to the source of the Nile, and just like meeting different people. So I, I lived a very blessed childhood, being constantly exposed to new um, different cultures. And for me, that was, you know, that was always part of my life is meeting new people and, you know, being exposed to different situations where I was an outsider in so many different environments. And I, and I think that's, that always sparked my curiosity. Like I've always loved asking people questions. Um, there was a time when I thought I wanted to go into law, but I think I would have made a pretty good journalist and just like always, nice. always ask people questions. And I think, you know, for me, that's such an important part of life is like you can only learn about other cultures, races, religions, backgrounds, affluence, if you ask the question. And I think too many, too many people have this, um, this ego complex and it's about looking good. And if, if you ask something or you ask a question, sometimes that that humbles you, doesn't make you look good because you don't know the answer. So I think that's why so many human beings don't ask the question. But hey, I've never been to Burundi, so I should ask you the question without me being silly. You know, I mean, you, you probably yeah. heard the strangest things. Absolutely. I mean, I'll have to tell you two things about Burundi. It's, it's I told you last time, the best country in the world, yes. not only for Africans, but for the for the world. That's what we do. And second, this is where you'll find the real source of the Nile. I'm just saying. Really? Yeah. There you go. It's, See, uh, always, always a new a new insight. Well, it's called like, the, I can't remember if you must have visited the Blue Nile in Uganda. Yes. And us, it's like the White Nile. Yes. So it's like the, the South. I'm just saying. <laughs> We've got a whole Learning every podcast day. Here on history that we need to dive into. <laughs> Absolutely. Every time I'm saying this, it's like people don't believe me. I'm like, do two things. Wikipedia could be tricky sometimes, 
But when it comes to scientific stuff, they're quite correct. And then try National Geographic because obviously there we go. you travel there. You know. But yeah, it's interesting when you talk about just being exposed to to different things and from early age and I feel like that's what I lived through my whole life actually. Uh, but still, you get to see things differently when you become an adult. You get to see maybe the injustice. You get to see things that really make you maybe angry, things that may, you may want to change. And I wonder how art, being in an art school, uh, art school, I guess, yeah? Well, I mean, I was I was at a very boy jock school, but there was a group, a small group of us that took art till the end of high school. And it naturally put us in a different bucket of, uh, yeah, a cosmopolitan mix of individuals from the extremes of the jocks all the way through to the the arty <laughs> cultural kids. You were exposed to a lot of different personalities. And I wonder how you maybe you decided to take that leap of faith and go to college and decided to to follow the path. How do you explain that first to yourself? Because as you said, maybe you wanted to become a journalist or a lawyer or this or, or that. Art school is not for every African person. Let me be clear, even like Western people. So how did you decide to do so and where did you study? So, you know, I always joke about parents. Parents are the ones that are always terrified. I, I think it's almost like a it's almost like a global truism that most parents would want their kids to be a chartered accountant because they know <laughs> that they have a safe path. Everyone always needs an accountant. Doesn't matter which hemisphere, which continent, everybody needs an accountant. And um, when I, I started thinking about options, speaking to my guidance counselor. The one thing I was considering was being an actor. And my parents, I think they went whiter oh, wow. than white. I think they could have fainted on the spot. You're never, you're never gonna have be able to to afford a mortgage. You're never gonna have medical aid. I mean these are like proper first world problems, right? That. And um, then eventually my, my guidance counselor had said to me she had a son who was in a similar position. And uh, he was really good at art, really good at humanities. And um, he found this degree that was a BA marketing communication. So it was not your standard Bachelor of Arts. It had obviously arty subjects and politics and a few other um, audiovisual based undergrad subjects. But it also had business management and marketing management. So it was it was peppered with just the slightest amount of business insights. And I think that gave my parents a little bit more comfort knowing yeah. that uh, there was some seriousness. I wasn't going to just be running around with some handy cam making some videos of my classmates. It's Steven Spielberg in the making. All right. So did you study in South Africa? Where did you did you go? Yeah, it's, it's known as the University of Johannesburg now. It, it changed names. It was busy going through a rebranding while I was there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's known as the University of Johannesburg now, and um, for me, it was it just gave me the perfect mix of of theory and like communication insights in terms of your basic understanding around like how human beings communicate, like how we interpret both the verbal and the nonverbal communication. Also, thinking about your marketing mix when you are putting a product out there in the world. And we had some really interesting practicals around dissecting South African brands, what they do well, what they can do better, and then putting like hypothetical campaign scenarios together. So it was, a, it was an interesting starting point because it gave me a lot of traditional comms theory grounding mm -hmm. so that I could start thinking like, what, what do I want to do next? Where, where do I go next with this thing? And um, once I'd finished my degree, I used to work part-time doing cold calling telemarketing for a, a real estate agency 
I managed to get some commission when houses get sold. Nice. I did some, uh, I did some of those promotions works where I would go to malls in South Africa and I would spray fragrances at people. I would sample different products and different retail outlets. So for me, I've always been someone who needs to have money. I'm always trying to find ways to to build the the pocket money base mm. so that I I don't like being reliant on on other people for money. I've never been one who wants handouts from their parents. So always wanted to make a plan to be as independent uh, early on as possible. Interesting. So, okay, you're working, you're doing your thing. And I like the fact that you talked about just uh, working during your, uh, your studies. How many companies did you see then? Because uh, let me tell you, I know this, I know MultiChoice, I know MTN, and I know a couple of things, big companies coming from South Africa. But honestly, I don't know much exactly what's happening on the ground. Maybe you may have seen a huge amount of companies coming up since you were in university until now. What changed? Do, do they know how to use, you know, the, I was going to tell you, to, to talk to you about social media just afterwards. But like, did you get to see the change in terms of branding from, you know, your high school days, uni days to, to now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I've kind of lived the evolution from traditional advertising into social. And for me, it was quite a journey. So, I mean, there's a part of the story that I'll just fast forward through, but I, I wanted to be an actor for a period. And I went to Hollywood for a bit and wrote a play. And that play became my first my first startup. And it oh, taught wow. me things around budgeting, around making posters, around going out and using word of mouth and emails to encourage people to come to your play because this was pre-social media. And then off the back of that, I got offered my first job in a PR agency. And that for me was an interesting starting place because one, I didn't know a lot about public relations. And then secondly, I worked at a very strategic firm who was all around the copywriting and all, in, all around the narrative of an industry problem and making your client the solution. So from a value proposition and from a positioning point of view, it was almost like if this was the pitch deck of problem and solution, put that into a press release and then let's encourage journalists to tell the story about our clients because journalists were the original influencers. They had the ability for you to talk from one to one to many. And that was the original thought process around amplification and distribution strategies from a comms perspective. And um, I worked for them for a year and a half. I then won a fancy dress, a fancy dress competition to go to the UK. So my best okay. mates and I went to cricket at Lords based on our fancy dress nice. competition. And when I was in the UK, I used to spend a lot of time on the tube, on buses. And my first feature phone that I had, I was able to access Twitter on it. And I started following journalists and early adopters because I've always been really interested in like the connectivity of us as a species and using communication and communication tools to connect from one to one to many. So almost like the genesis of that PR role. And my job in London was to PR startups that nobody had ever heard of. So going back to making mates with journalists to get them to tell the story, that was that tick box. And then while I was learning the media landscape in the UK, then I simultaneously was experimenting on Twitter. I was writing a blog. I was interested in the analytic side of eyeballs coming to your blog. Where do the people come from? Why are they reading my story? What's the origin of this person? And 
then by putting all those dots together, it then made me realize that there's this perfect gap to be able to be digital, PR, and activation-led. And by bringing that, I call it the holy trinity of marketing, by bringing those three things together, you can create real impact that's measurable, and you can showcase how your communication campaign has supported the business objectives of the brand that you're working on. So from, from the UK, you get to learn, you get to see, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not trying to, to synthesize Africa with you know, 55 countries saying that it's all the same, but I think it's easier to do so maybe in Europe or in, in the US where you can use data. In Africa, we have a problem with data. How do you collect them? You know, who do you trust and all these things? So I wonder, doing your job, what you were doing in the UK, trying to translate to maybe in Kinshasa or Nairobi, could have been harder or was just, it's just me? Yeah, I mean, I think African nuance is always a challenge because you've got so many different languages, cultures, and that's in just one market. Like South Africa, for example, you've got like 11ths of extremes, right? With poverty and provinces and you've got haves and have nots and you've got languages and you've got barriers and you've got cultures. So I think for using our market as an ecosystem and tapping into my insights around PR and also the one thing that I, I learned very cleverly and fastly from, from a stand-up comedy point of view is that stand-up comedy is like the cousin of marketing because when you walk into a stand-up comedy club, There's so many different people in the room. There's different shapes, faces, background sizes. And those people are almost like a metaphor for an audience that a bank or a telco or a financial services institution is trying to target. You can't blanket one message because not everybody in the room is a mom. Not everyone is a <laughs> child. And ultimately, yeah. um, the stand-up comedy metaphor for me was like tapping into a truth or an insight because that's the one thing that people within your target market can nod their heads to, or even those outside of your target market, they can also agree with your statement. And, and the, the insight is the, the almost the kernel and the fundamental grounding for coming up with a communications campaign that has to communicate to such a vast spectrum of people. And I think that for me is the most important part of this. So this is more of an emotional aspect as opposed to a data point. And once again, this applies to any market around the world, because once you tap into truisms, it becomes a lot easier to bring people on board with what you're saying and for you to distribute a general message across multiple nuanced individuals. And um, that was kind of, we took the plunge in 2010 to start Retroviral and, we, and we, we had some of the most interesting progressive brands that were playing in the social space. We had alcohol brands that are playing on social media, on Facebook, And then um, one of the first big projects I worked on was the Nando's brand. Nando's originated from South Africa based on a, a Mozambican yes. Portuguese chicken recipe. And now it's in most countries around the world. And the, the thing with their brand in South Africa was very much built around social commentary that was topical and humorous. So it could be a politician having said something silly. It could have been a sportsman who'd, you know, done something ridiculous off the field. And yeah. our, our culture and our community became expectant if somebody had made a faux pas in the public domain, then Nando's was going to be the one to throw shade or drag <laughs> you or cancel you before cancel culture existed. And it was a little bit um, it was a little bit flippant and fun. 
And, and that for me showed me like a really good appreciation for the fact that the internet and social media is just another distribution channel. So if your content is remarkable, you then can pick the distribution channels that you push through. And Twitter was a channel, blogging was a channel, Facebook was a channel. And so many of those early days, we didn't have the ability to buy media. We couldn't buy pre-rolls mm. on YouTube. You couldn't buy Facebook ads. So organic word of mouth spread for me was so incredibly important. And by connecting the dots with traditional PR, with digital PR, like we became almost early adopted disseminators of content because we knew how to connect the dots of content with community to drive commercialization. That's pretty awesome. And I have to say something about Nandos because I remember the first time I heard about the company, it was my first business case at, uh, at a business school. And I was so happy to know that it was a South African brand. I was like, I can't wait to, to taste the food. And then I went to London and I was like, Jesus is real. This is, <laughs> I was like, yeah. what is this? Because I think, oh my God, I, I think I, I stayed there for two days or three days and I ate Nando's three or four times. I was like, I'm happy. I'm just happy. So South Africa all over the world. Um, what, what kind of, if you're to speak to some kind of maybe a younger you, who's located in maybe Nigeria or something um, where you have a lot of opportunity, but you don't know exactly how to connect those dots because you were able to do so maybe because of your experience, you were able to see something that was coming in uh, on the internet, as the old people will say, everything is happening on the internet. What would you say now? What was happening? Because I get to see, I'm not going to lie, I'm not huge on social media thing, but I have to be on it because of work. My go-to thing is uh, LinkedIn, but I can't with TikTok. But then again, there are kids and non-kids actually who know how to use those tools and know how to profit from them and know how to build a community because at the end of the day, it's an audience that you have to build. And I wonder where you're seeing from your space, from your seat, I will say, from South Africa. So for me, I think personal branding is the most important thing you can do for yourself. Like we are brands as individuals. And how do we create that brand to stand out from the clutter? If you think about some of the most popular characters in the world, Mr. Beast, phenomenal personal brand and what he's been able to achieve. So speaking to my hypothetical Nigerian younger self, um, for me, it's like, what is the platform that you're obsessed with? What's the thing that you know you can consistently create content on? Like for you, for you, you're a LinkedIn fan, but you're mm -hmm. not a TikTok fan. And that's fine. You can't be all things to all people. Yeah. For me, my initial platform of growth was Twitter. Love tweeting. I used it every day. I would go and speak at conferences and push my Twitter handle so that I'd get new followers and people mm -hmm. engage with me. And I, li I like the bite-sized world of Twitter because I'm a, I'm a writer more than I am a videographer. And I gravitate towards words before pictures. And for me, Twitter was the space to put out thoughts and to test cheekiness of thoughts or to just test concepts with people and bounce back with this community. And my first, I mean, two years of being on Twitter, I grew an audience of a thousand followers. So not a lot, but a pretty good use case for an early yeah. adopter channel to see mm. what people were saying, to engage, to follow key celebrities, influencers, technology, journalists, and then... I mean, here we are, what's this, 13 years of retroviral later, I've got 20,000 followers organically on Twitter. So once again, not a huge audience, but big enough for me to be able to use myself as a guinea pig and as a, as a distribution tool for key messages that I want to put out there or to try and galvanize some kind of instance. So in short, 
where can you build your personal brand and on which channel are you the one that's going to be able to be um, consistent enough to be putting mm. out your messages for your opportunity to grow. And nowadays, myself, I, I play predominantly on, on LinkedIn and Twitter because LinkedIn gives you a much freer algorithm for your content to be seen by more people. Generally, oh, okay. LinkedIn has less throttling of its algorithm than, say, Twitter or the Zuckerberg-owned platforms because LinkedIn wants your thought leadership to spread. So I can post to my 7,000 LinkedIn followers and get... 100,000 impressions on something if yeah. it is sticky and remarkable enough. Whereas to get 100,000 impressions of my 20,000 followers on, on Twitter, it takes a, quite a remarkable tweet to do that. Okay. Okay. Now it makes sense. And I wonder we, in the world of everything is noisy, everything, everybody's talking, everybody's pushing their personal brand. How does you, Mike, make some space for creativity? So yeah, I think creativity is always like this um, holy grail, right? Like where does it come from? How do you encourage yeah. it? How do you inspire it? For me, I love watching content. So I love Netflix, Showmax. I love shows. I love well-written mm -hmm. drama. I love the HBO stuff. I like the I like yeah. the the content that makes my brain work and it isn't obvious about where it's going and. I watch a lot of advertising. I follow a lot of like cans winning content. And I just love seeing the smart stuff that exists, stuff that makes you think. And I guess that comes back to being someone who's quite an art fan, someone who's a history fan. All these things are kind of interlinked. When you become, when your brain is like critically thought driven, it's almost critical content that you like to consume, to inspire you. And for me, I'm a huge procrastinator, so I will spend a few hours just, you know, going drifting off in my head, reading some tweets, watching some content, and then by opening your mind to the opportunity to attract ideas, you're more likely to have more ideas, more consistency. It's almost like training your brain like you would go to the gym to train your muscles. Like you have to get your headspace into that. So sometimes it's exercising, then I come up with a thought. And then I'll be tracking my run on Strava and then I'll quickly write in my notes, a little thought process. Um, Stand-up comedy yeah. teaches you to have a notebook next to your bed because if you wake up at three in the morning and you have a, have a little nugget of an idea, <laughs> write it down because you won't remember it in the morning when you wake up. So it's always around as soon as you've got a spark of an idea in your head, just jot it down and have your consistent notebook where you write your ideas. And sometimes they are very messy and they... They're like little zygotes of concepts that don't always evolve to a yeah. fully-fledged newborn idea. But those things, ultimately, the connection of those dots will then lead one to the next. And it's almost like this connected universe of concepts and ideas. Interesting. So I, I want to give you two examples of maybe of people that you may know personally or not, but I, with through whom I have seen how maybe social media has evolved and maybe trusting more in the in the ability to create an audience. So you talked about Twitter, and I think years ago when I started to hear about Twitter is because Ashton Kutcher was the first one to reach a million followers or something like that. He was taking pictures of Demi Moore's bum. I think that's also why I signed up to Twitter. That he may, <laughs> he may have been the catalyst. <laughs> 
you know that's why i was like what is this for me it was pointless for you it was uh there is a reason behind yeah. <laughs> behind it joining it cancelled today but at the time people thought it was innocent fun you know true true absolutely but you get to see how he became a huge um personality in that space and then he was able to uh, to go to silicon valley either investing or being a product designer or this and this and that and people started to take him seriously then I fast forward and I see the, the um, uh, Ryan Reynolds, who is an actor, doing his own thing, and then he reached a certain amount of you know uh, followers, and he started to push his maximum effort company, and I was like, it's amazing. I haven't seen all his movies, but I pretty like I like a lot Deadpool, so I started seeing his sense of humor. I was like, oh my goodness, he's really funny, and then every time he's pushing an ad, I have to watch it because I laugh at the end of the day, and I wonder if. Those two people, one, we will say maybe they had like a PR people person behind them. They had like a Mike Sherman behind them to kind of like, hey, maybe you should try this and push it. And and think not only for branding other people's companies, but to think for yourself to start companies, you know, ad agencies here, um, alcohol beverage here and there. And I wonder if we can replicate that maybe in South African space or the African space as well. Yeah, I think they are perfect examples of building your personal brand. Like Ashton being cheeky and naughty and like having a little bit of playfulness, he brought his personality to life through his channels. And similarly, Ryan Reynolds. I mean, I think Ryan is so much like himself in anything that he casts himself. He's got that very dry sense of humor mixed sometimes <laughs> with a bit of slapstickness. And it just, it shows each of their individuality so well. The fact that they were popular actors definitely helped explode their mm. personal brands. But so much of their tactics were based on the authenticity of who they were as people. And I mean, we've seen it in South Africa. There's a there's a, a young entertainer called Lassizwe, um, at Lassizwe on Twitter and on, on YouTube. And Lassizwe mm -hmm. has done an incredible job. Also understood the growth of content and the, the actual algorithm of YouTube. And I've had the pleasure of, of shooting a commercial with Lissizwe. And during the lunch break, there was this obsession around like, what's the algorithm doing? What needs to po be posted when? And builds these various characters, like inspired by his mother and, and her character. And he would bring all these different archetypes to life in the various content using TikTok, using Reels, using YouTube, as an opportunity to grow a personal brand. And as an example, has done deals with BET, with MTV, with Samsung, with um, a large retailer that's owned by um, MassMart in, in South Africa. And you previously had never seen that growth and that explosion of a young South African who hadn't previously been introduced to the world through traditional, inverted commas, like celebrity channels or reality shows or so soapies that have so many other people in the past allowed them to catapult to fame. So Lissizwe is a great opportunity and, and proof point for what is possible when you stick to the consistency of content creation and you know the type of platform that you want to be uh, associated or what you want to be consistent on. And I think that's, that's the example for me that springs to mind immediately without having used traditional channels to garner growth and celebrity in our market. Great. And I have to come back with uh, the algorithm stuff because I keep hearing about it. And coming back to what you said about Mr. Biz, because I came to see his work, I think a year ago, something like that on the Forbes list. I remember I didn't know who he was. And I realized like my 
French kids knew about him, even though they don't speak English, by the way. They speak French. And I was like, they probably oh, learned English from watching Mr. Beast videos, right? True that, because they have like uh, subtitles. And I was like, who is this guy? And I remember just watching some of his interviews and he said, I spent five years trying to understand you, the YouTube algorithm. I was like, what? Like, I was stunned because at the end of the day, you can say, okay, he's getting a decent amount of money. But he must be a really huge worker. He must be a really focus-centered guy, even though he's like this funny guy. What is the YouTube algorithm? What is the Twitter algorithm? What is the TikTok algorithm? So all of these platforms are built in terms of like a three, it's generally like a three-structured scientific algorithm. So it's, it's the three R's. It's reach, it's resonance, and it's relevance. And... It all started out pretty much with Google building their algorithm from a search perspective for mm -hmm. the Google search engine. And when you think about living in an internet world where there's so much content, when you go into Google to search something, your search result is also speaking to your Gmail, is speaking to your demographics, is speaking to your behavior. So when you search something, you're not going to necessarily see the same thing that I would see yeah. if I searched exactly the same criteria. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me is like, it's mind blowing because when it comes to Facebook, you are served a mirror to a world that resonates with your interests, with your biases, with your consumption habits. And that's why the world is so much in a very segmented and dissected place because if you have views that are synonymous with a left political leaning, you're mm -hmm. going to see stuff that appeases you and makes your left leaning habits appreciative to you. If mm. you are someone who's more right focused and more conservative, you're going to be seeing articles that then talk to that personality. And that's the dangerous part around algorithms. We are exposed to the stuff that makes our biases more of an appetite to ourselves so that we don't feel judged and we don't feel like our views are something that is wrong. And that in us current states in which we occupy, it stops people from being open-minded. It stops them from critical thought because immediately you're in a position where your biases are being justified by the social channels. There's no incentive for you to question your views. There's no, yeah. there's no incentive to question the political leaning or the politician that you're going to the polls to give your vote to because it, the, the social channels make it okay to love the stuff you do and hate the stuff that you do conversely. How about if we push the, the, the social, maybe the presence on the social media for good or for bad? I remember having a conversation with a friend who works at the African Union in Addis Ababa. And it's funny because she told me that it took them quite some time to push the, 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 the company or maybe the organization to come on social media, Instagram, hopefully next, TikTok. AEU has its own principles, its own um, projects, let's just say. And they have a really hard time explaining what they do to their own citizens, a.k.a. Africans, you know, and I keep teasing her all the time. I was like, you guys need a really PR, like you guys need to know how to market and how to speak to people. Do you feel like now, because yeah, the algorithm is there for good and for bad, but maybe if we do some hashtag Africa, African Union can come up with really relevant um, articles. Do you feel like you can work you with them to kind of push the, 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 
narrative of what African Union does? Or is it better to do so with maybe a sports person or, um, or an actor or an activist, I guess? The thing with bodies, regardless if they are you know, NGO-driven or the AU or if it's a political uh, body, they don't have humanity. They're just seen as bricks and mortar. They're just seen as a logo. I mean, I couldn't answer in a tweet what the AU does. If you gun to my head, what does the AU do? I wouldn't be able to tell you because I think you get lost in the bureaucracy and the red tape of key messages. So my recommendation to that sort of body is to drive who is the individual leading the organization and what are the key messages that they are trying to achieve. Because the more you build something around an individual, that was always an interesting thing around Kofi Annan, for example, whether you like the guy or you don't. The reality was the UN became more human with Kofi in charge because he had a voice, he had an opinion, he was on a lot of media shows, he wasn't mm. afraid of, of giving sound bites and speaking to various media outlets around the world. So by having him exposed to what he was trying to achieve from a UN perspective, he also had a very specific African stance, he also had a specific like process in terms of what he was wanting to follow. Like that humanization of an organization. Like I could probably tell you now, 20 years later, more views that Kofi Annan had as opposed to Ban Ki-moon. And those like, you know, if you look at recency and relevance, ultimately it's what is the personality doing to tell us the story? And that's why I, I love using the analogy of drive to survive because for, for me, never an F1 fan. Thought it was boring. At best, I'd watch the start <laughs> to see some crashes, maybe fall asleep and have a nap and then wake up for the, the, the award ceremony. But what Drive to Survive did, it created a soap opera for men and women alike. It allowed us to have a little glimpse into the world of these various drivers. And then off the back of that, you buy into the personality and then you invest mm. into the actual sport, the brand. And for me, that's, that's a similar thing with bodies. Politicians are usually too afraid to give questions and answers because it opens themselves up to hypocrisy and it opens themselves mm. up to being analyzed or judged because now everything's recorded, everything's online. So if you have a policy around the poor and you say something that is uh, almost the juxtaposition of that or the opposite of that, when you come out and speak again, people and trolls will be the first to highlight, oh, you said this about poor and about grants or the underprivileged, mm. now you're changing your tune and you're doing this. So, mm. so few leaders are willing to stand and fight for the stuff they believe in because we know that they are prone to flip-flopping based on what the electorate wants to hear from them in order to give them their vote. But for me, I believe organizations that are really wanting to make a difference, really wanting to make a stand, who is their figurehead and what can you buy into? And that's where so many of these tech companies have used a figurehead to grow. There've been more than one search engine. There's been more than one version of, of Twitter. There's been more than one version of Facebook. But ultimately, the characters that lead those organizations, those are the ones that stand out because they are the thought leaders of that digital ship. Elon Musk, love him or hate him, he's always standing for something and he always sticks yeah. to his views. So someone might turn around and say he's exploiting his labor force, but he's going to turn around and say, guys, if we want to get to Mars, we actually yeah. need to have excellence here and we need to work 24 hours a day. And people that don't want to work in those environments, 90% of them say, well, get, get rinsed. Elon, I'm not working here anymore. <laughs>
<laughs> and it's like it's okay we'll do without you okay before i let you go i have to ask you two things because i like the the springbok rugby ball you have behind you and i have to ask you two things so i'll give you this business case there is a rugby world cup that's happening in france in september and obviously everybody's excited everybody in the sports space Uh, but the reality for for now, what I see, because I'm working in, in helping some some companies uh, here, and you can say that France is kind of they don't know exactly how to work this space. They know that millions of people are coming, and you know, families and supporters and everything. They don't know exactly how to to take care of things. And at the same time, you have the football women World Cup in Australia and New Zealand this summer. Same thing. I'm excited, you know, sports-wise. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a supporter, and I wonder if you were to given like those two jobs, which one would you choose? Because you know that maybe this one is lacking about something, and this one speaks more to to a wider audience. It could be rugby. Obviously, football speaks to a lot of people, but the reality is, it's women base and it's not exactly the same it doesn't attract the same amount of money the same amount of media attention and so on and so forth and i wonder with you if you were given those two jobs which one would you choose and nobody's judging if you choose the rugby stuff <laughs> no gut feel immediately go to women's football world cup and the reason why is i have um i have two young daughters uh -huh. i've got a son as well but the the two daughters are so incredibly different and my littlest one is obsessed with rackets and ball sports And she'll make me hit tennis balls too when I get nice. home today. She'll, nice. play, she'll play field hockey. And what the most incredible thing that's happening is that you're starting to see more eyeballs move into your more traditional like tier one sports like women's football. Mm -hmm. And recently when Wembley sold out for the Lionesses and yeah. their final, yeah. I think that's an incredible opportunity. And most recently, I don't know if you follow much cricket, But there's just been the women's IPL auction in India. And women are starting to earn contracts that for our version of cash is in the millions, which is unheard of. The fact that, I mean, I was throwing tennis balls to my little daughter yesterday and she was hitting the tennis balls like a cricket shot, like queer cuts, cover drives. And I said, I made the joke, because at Kingsley, we're going to the women's IPL auction. <laughs> and, and I think... You know, I say it in jest, but nice. the opportunities for women in sports mm -hmm. is greater than they've ever been before. And just two days ago, I must actually find the article on LinkedIn for you. It was mm -hmm. one of the Google execs. She's an ex-Olympian. And there's an article on Forbes that she contributed to where she spoke about women in corporate who have spent time playing sport. doesn't have to be professionally, but it can be like in, in quite a serious and sort of realm, mm -hmm. they are likely to earn 7% more in the corporate environment because of the impact that sport has had on them. What I'm loving about this women's IPL auction going back to cricket is that the entire culture around India, the, the headspace around caste systems, around what you're born into and what you will be and what you won't be, is being challenged on a daily basis now because of women's sport. Now women are able to be breadwinners as cricketers in India. And for me, that's an incredible thing. Like, think about all the women in Africa who are potential footballers. Banyana Banyana winning the AFCON recently for us and yeah. our young girls. Now you can go on to have a career in football where so many young girls felt like they don't get a complete high school education. They have to drop out and they have to become subservient to a more patriarchal structure. So for me, like, I would love to use sport as a foil to help with the empowerment of young women. And I think that's why I would definitely 
not a doubt choose women's football world cup over men's rugby even though i'd love to watch both of them <laughs> good for you and how about your future project then are you working on something exciting are you yes, scared of the open always. ai or you just don't care you just move on with your projects we have we have a product called matchkit matchkit.co is the domain and um, we've just launched this campaign called adopt an athlete i, I felt you were mystery shopping here and teeing me up so adopt an athlete is um basically a way to showcase we've got about 35 40 potential olympian and paralympic hopefuls and our infrastructure in south africa our sporting bodies they are economically under pressure so we've helped our field hockey team get to tokyo we helped our women medalists earn a bonus when they weren't going to receive a formal one from government so here we are we're thinking 18 months ahead of paris 2024 so that's, that's why nice. we're here to help our athletes to get the best possible preparation. You can't go into Paris thinking, geez, I don't know if I'm going to go or not because I don't have the money. Yeah. We need to be able to help tee up that opportunity so that when they get their ticket, they are in the right headspace. They're ready to roll. We had our worst Olympics ever at Tokyo. We didn't get a single track and field at, uh, medal. And, and for me, like that's just not good enough. We're a great nation. We punch above our weight. And we need to put those individuals back on the pedestal where they belong. And sport is the greatest unifier. So for me, sport cuts through race, it cuts through culture, it cuts through affluence. And it shows that anything is possible, whether you are from an impoverished area or whether you are from an affluent area. Everybody has, um, you know, democratization of, of opportunity on the sport field. Wow. All right. So there's a lot to do for the next year, at least, or two. Uh, hopefully we'll see you in France. If That's I it. You from you know, we're gonna, gonna, gonna high five at the aquatic center when one of our swimmers gets a medal. <laughs> you know, because it's true, we don't have any Burundian, at least not on your level. But still, let's still, I'll be cheering for you. And last question, but it's really a, s a serious one. Where can I find a Springbok jersey? That's really good quality because I hear there's difference when you buy it from, you know, in South Africa with when you buy it outside Africa. South Africa it's like this is this is racist, <laughs> as Trevor would say. You know. <laughs> Alex, you're going to you're going to give me your details off air. You're going to give me your size because it's rude to ask a woman their clothing size on a podcast. <laughs> you're going to give me your details, and I'm going to make a plan for you. Thanks a lot. But hey, Mike, thanks a lot for what you do because I think you're changing the African narrative and I'm happy that I get to see you uh, change a lot of things, lots of things. And hopefully, I hope that we can work together on some project because the thing I'm going to that. No joke. No, no, seriously, I'm being honest because there are things happening in a sports space. So wishing you the best. Have a great day with your daughters, with your son and more sports in your life. And uh, yeah, have a lager or a Heineken Thank back you. there. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for having me.